If any king of Babylon who comes after me should need, let them come to this tomb and take as much as they want. Let them not open this tomb unless they are truly in need. If open for any other reason, it will not go well with them. Mm, a stern warning from a legendary queen. This tomb is enormous. Oof, you should see it. I can only imagine what kind of mind created a place like this, a city like this, an empire like this. They say she created gardens in the desert, blasted mountains out of her way, carved her face into hillsides, went to war with her hair half done, commanded armies, and conquered everywhere she went. They also say she possessed supernatural beauty, drove men to madness to steal their power, beheaded her lovers, committed incest with her son. Oh, how did this sovereign empress become the whore of Babylon? Who was this Semiramis? I have wondered about her for ages. Legend has it, one day while inspecting a flock of sheep, Onus, the governor of ancient Assyria, spotted the most beautiful woman the world had ever seen. Semiramis, your beauty knows no equal. You must be my wife. They say, after they were married, he became her slave, never making a decision without her. And he was successful in all he did. Until an invasion of his failed, he sent for Semiramis, and she did what his men could not. I must scale that tower and take over the command center. Watch for my signal when I reach the top. This is the only way to capture the city. And capture the city she did. They say her military intelligence captured the eye of King Ninus. He became obsessed, infatuated with her, and pursued her though she was married. Onus, Semiramis's first husband, pulled by loyalty to the king and <laughs> loyalty to his wife, was driven to madness and killed himself. <laughs> The king marries Semiramis, and she takes over the throne when he dies. Now, she reigned over an empire in her own right. I am Empress Regnant the sovereign queen of Babylon. Bring me a soldier after the bloodlust of battle. I am ready for lust of another kind. You are mine now. 
You will have no other lovers. I am the only one with the key to this belt. If you betray me, I will have your heads. They say Semiramis invented the chastity belt. But what is fact and what is myth? Did these ancient writers and historians who came from worlds away, did they understand what they saw when they saw Semiramis? Build higher. Work faster. The name of Semiramis will be known for ages after my death. The name of Semiramis will live forever. Semiramis founded Babylon, and her city's walls were monumental. So tall and wide were they, it was thought they were built by giants. We must tame the Euphrates River, bring its currents to our crops and gardens. Her hanging gardens impressed all those who laid eyes on them. She watered the desert, brought lush vegetation and exotic foliage where there was nothing before. Bring rocks from the quarry to build both palaces. One palace will face the rising sun, and the other palace will face the setting sun. They say she invented hydraulic masonry, and that to get from one palace to the other, she engineered an underwater walkway. This mountain blocks my path. Move it! Oh, rerouting rivers? Moving mountains? Semiramis made earthworks of such scale and size that the ancient world was astonished by her colossal power. Not to mention, she was legendary in battle. This evening, I will braid my hair. Queen Empress, a rebellion has started in the north of the city. They say they will overthrow you this very night. But my queen, your hair, it is not finished being braided. And it will remain undone until my job is finished. They say she crushed that rebellion. So much so that there was never another rebellion in Babylon. She was so revered in battle, even Alexander the Great competed to outdo her accomplishments. They say after being wounded in battle, Alexander was overheard telling his generals, We cannot retreat. We have not yet equaled a woman in glory. He even used her war tactics. 
to distract the enemy disguise the camels as elephants. They've never seen them before and will be confused. Riders will hide under the hides of our cows and attack the enemy when they are in close range. But somehow the plot was given away and her army was defeated. And here we sit in the tomb of Semiramis, come to receive all the treasures we need. But my question still remains, who is this Semiramis? How did an empress become the whore of Babylon? I suppose it depends on who's telling the story. Maybe Semiramis wasn't a single woman. Maybe the name was given to extraordinary women of that time. Maybe there are more Semiramises. Well, whoever she was and whatever she did, she made her own way. Make of it what you will. That says more about you than it does about her. So maybe the question isn't who is Semiramis, but rather, who are you? the beginning we've been the women alchemizing always beating the system they ain't want to give us rights but we kept with division oh no virago with ammo gonna handle the business brave people gals guys and everybody in between have you checked in with your heart today what is making you bloom welcome to another episode of vanguard of the viragos where we revisit the heroines of human history to learn from this hidden archive of treasures I'm your hostess with the mostess, Chelsea D. I'm currently in Washington, D.C., and I want to uplift that I am on the ancestral lands of the Nacotchtank, Anacostan, and Piscataway peoples. I want to uplift their stewardship of the land. As a quick accessibility check-in today, I'm doing pretty good, still experimenting with tech elements, so um, yeah, just work with me on that. <laughs> This is the portion of the show where I get to chat with a very special guest. I like to tell stories. I am a creative who is addicted to diverse representation and storytelling for the stories we tell mold the people we become, I think. But my guests on this show are folks who are actively studying, preserving, and I would argue making history. These are the real heroes. And today's hero is Dr. Jackie Murray. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much for having me on, the, on this podcast. Exciting. <laughs> let's do a quick check-in. Um, how, how are things with you? How, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine. Um, I don't leave the house. Um, <laughs> mask or not mask, I'm not going outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, you go as far you. as the porch to get the mail. Sometimes. <laughs> Thank you. We've all got to do our part. We've all got to do our part. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm so I'm so excited to have you on the show this week because I think that uh, your work plays a lot of the plays a large role in connecting the dots for a lot of the inspiration for why I'm doing this podcast. You know, how can we really diversify representation of who is studying history and who is making history and 
our place in in human history. So I'm so excited, so excited to have you on. Uh, could you share a little bit with us about your area of expertise? You know, where, what uh, specific era of time you're studying and maybe a little bit about what drew you to that okay, specific well, area? Okay, well, um, I'm a classicist, which means I study Greek and Roman uh, cultures, languages and cultures. Um, I'm a literary scholar, so I'm more interested in not, not that I'm not interested in the other stuff, but I'm more interested in the literature, poetry, the um, storytelling, um, and contextualizing it in its uh, historical context in terms of, uh, so it's usually the works in Greek or Latin. And so um, I'm more on, people category more on the Greek side, um, but the, the period that I focus on is what we call the Hellenistic period. So that's the period from um, the death of Alexander the Great, so 323 BCE to, well, they usually end it with the death of Cleopatra, so um, 30 um, BC, but I would contend that the Hellenistic period goes um, much further on um, into the empire, Roman empire. Um, and uh, so, so that's the period I work on, not um, classical Greece, which would be 500, what we call the fifth century uh, BCE. So not the period of Euripides and Sophocles um, that people are more familiar with, not the period earlier archaic period Homer, though Homer is very important for my period, but it's a period of say the great Alexandrian library um, in Egypt. And um, that's my my area is I work on the, the, the folks who were in the Alexandrian library working on science and um, poetry uh, in terms of so so yeah so in terms of that I'm uh, I also work on the influence of science in on Greek poetry like uh, as well as um, other aspects and um, I'm also interested on the way Greek poetry influenced Roman poetry because it's at the same time that we're getting um, beginnings of Roman literature poetry start because of the influence from um, the Hellenistic writers. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very multicultural area. So how did I get interested in it was, well, I was interested in um, the this period because of the fact that it's when um, Greek becomes the lingua franca of the Mediterranean. So it becomes the language, the, the general language of the Mediterranean. So Romans mm -hmm. are speaking Greek, Jews in, in in Israel are speaking Greek, um, the Persian Empire is starting to become Greek. And so you're getting this um, monolingual-ish, um, everybody's maybe bilingual there, but Greek is gonna be the la the language of, of communication and Greek culture is becoming um, uh, pervasive. And then the conflicts that come with that because of identities that are in, in tension with um, with the, with the the conquering um, Greek Greeks of that period, so on the historical side, I was very interested in um, say uh, the influence of uh, Jewish um, people in in, in resisting um, Greek conquest, um, and then also uh, the Ro Greeks themselves resisting Roman conquest. Um, so it's a very multicultural period. And that, that was what really drew me to it. It's not like this 
one um, culture where we're being presented with, oh, it's all unified, which is what we get in the fifth century because our only source is Athens or come, are coming from Athens at that time period. So we have a, 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 a sort of vision of the ancient world that's based on fifth century Athens, like maybe a generation or two, and then we somehow extrapolate that and get give the impression that that's all of what the Greek world was like, which is like by no means the truth, because there's Sicilian Greeks, Greeks were living in Sicily and southern Italy, and in, you know, and, and North Africa, uh, and in, you know in Egypt, even in um, more southern Africa, way into India, all the way in the Black Sea, like all over. So like to say that. Um, you know, what Euripides is writing about was all there is. It's like really uh, all the areas of ancient Greece is, is, is um, problematic. So, I, so I'm very interested in that. So that's one area, my primary <laughs> area then. Incredible. <laughs> Get that out. Incredible. Like my, primary, my primary area is on Greek literature of the Hellenistic era that um, is, and, I, and I, I, the, I work on one particular poem a lot which is the only epic to survive between Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and Virgil's Aeneid, uh, the, the, the Roman poem, which is Apollonius's Argonautica, so Jason and the Argonauts. Mm-hmm. And so the figure of Medea, um, how she comes to Greece, this is the story that um, I work on, uh, the epic that goes with that, which is very interesting in itself. Um, I'm obsessed with it, so there you go. People know that that's what I work on, right? Now, the other half of it is um, I also work on, of course, race in um, race and ethnicity in antiquity um, and its repercussions for today. And um, one of the um, one of the areas where I sort of create that is I, I, I'm particularly right now working on um, W.E.B. Du Bois his novel, The Quest for the Silver Fleece. So it's connected to the Quest for the Golden Fleece. It's the connection. Um, And um, looking at how he, I think I'm writing on on it right now. I'm arguing that um, he sees it as, it's his first foray into writing a novel, right? Mm -hmm. His earlier works are more poetic and philosophical and historical and sociological. And, um, and this is right after he writes um, The Souls of Black Folk. He's asked by his publishers uh, if he could do a more popularizing version of that in a narrative form. And so he spends a couple of years coming up with the quest for the silver fleece, which is really a, a story, I think. I, I'm, I'm arguing that it's his attempt at a, a, a sort of foundation novel, a foundation epic for black americans african americans um and uh and in in the tradition of foundation epics like the aeneid where and the argonautica where uh the idea is that you're 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 laying the 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 groundwork for this new culture um and he's very obsessed with um, education at that time um as the sort of basis of um of the culture um, and so the story is set in um, the school in this fictional Toons, Alabama, um, which sort of leads to the idea it's this dead place because, um, you know, yeah, this idea. 
and um, and his character Bless uh, Alwyn, who is I would argue is him in disguise, <laughs> Du Bois in disguise, who comes right. from Georgia, where he's actually teaching at the Atlanta University, <laughs> comes and he comes to Alabama and he falls in love with this uh, girl Zora, um, who Zora means. Uh, brilliant uh, like dawn or something like that and um well in in the jason and the argonauts jason goes to the east to meet medea who of course has flashing eyes and um is his daughter of the sun there's a, there's a lot of reason to believe that they are and, and there's actually explicit reason to believe that they are um the a black version of um, jason medea and then um you get uh, the story of the quest is told that the uh, is told in the in the in the um, novel from a white perspective and a black perspective, and um, and so there's 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 two um, Argonauticas going on in the in the um, in the novel, and uh, one is the white one, one is the black one, and I think the the idea is that the black one is the foundation. Or he wants it to be a foundation myth for, um, you know, African Americans uh, coming post uh, Reconstruction, uh, moving into the the Jim Crow era. Well, it is a Jim Crow era, and how how to uh, how to survive that. So yeah, so it's so yeah, so that's that's the other half. So one half is I'll you know I teach Greek language, I teach Greek literature, I write about. Um, very complicated Greek literature. And then the other is the reception of that in African-American and Afro-Caribbean literature, right? Uh, so the voice is my Afro African-American stuff. And then um, with um, with uh, two colleagues, one being um, Sasha Mae Eccleston at Brown, who's somebody you probably want to interview. Ishan Hutchinson, who's a poet at Columbia University, uh, you might want to interview him too. Uh, there were three of us are Jamaican extraction. Um, and so we're working on what we're calling the Patois Iliad, we haven't, um, which I had, a, it was originally um, an idea I had that I developed in a class where it's like, let's translate, let's, I'm gonna to try to translate, adapt the epic into, um, into something about uh, Jamaican identity, right? And so, uh, so that so there there we we have a project that we're um, we we're supposed to, COVID interfered, but <laughs> we were supposed to meet in Brown last uh, last year, and we're we're going to get back to that. But we we wanted to um, to do that and uh, and we get back to it. So it'll be it'll be looking at trying to import the Iliad into sort of the maroon wars with the british in jamaica so that that's one thing and then and on that same thing event, i'm also doing a creole odyssey where looking at my idea for that is the is um having odysseus um listen to the stories of the people he's actually enslaved um i mean so so it's the way it's said is that uh, he's he's he, it's so in the Odyssey, just so people know, Odysseus um, has coming back from the war of Troy, blah blah, blah and he and um, he loses all of his men and everything along the way. And on one point, he has to go by the sirens, 
and the sirens, um, he's told by Cersei, um, who actually incidentally is Medea's aunt, but um, he's told by Cersei that um, he shouldn't, everybody should stop up their ears or something because people, if you listen to the song of the sirens, people die. So they're very dangerous. So he, what he does is he gets uh, his men to tie him to the, the mast of the ship and stops up their ears. And um, while he's he, rowing by, he can hear the song of the sirens, and but he's tied up, so he can't, can't jump overboard, which is what normally happens when you hear the song of the, the sirens. So in, in, in my idea of it, um, he's uh, tied up on the, or he, he imagines he's tied up on the, on the thing and um, he hears the song. We get to hear the song this time from the sirens. He tells, in the Odyssey, he tells the story, sort of you know, presses it and tells us what they said, but this time it's what they say. And they basically tell the story of the different people, especially women that he's enslaved and um, subjected to. To slavery and um, and and of course then who have drowned because he's lost all of his ships and stuff right so who have drowned um, and you know didn't even make it to the slavery that they were gonna that he was taking them to because they they, they died and um, and then what I want it to be is like it's really his death dream um, because he's actually did jump overboard and swim over to the <laughs> and so it's his death dream of uh, a reckoning of, of that. So anyway, that, that's the, the, the other project that I work on. <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing I'm working on is, um, it's a, so like my, my uh, colleague, uh, Dennison, uh, she does a lot of um, work on uh, race. Uh, it's just, a, she's a historian. So we're, we're, she and I are doing a, a, a book on understanding race and ethnicity. Cause we've both been, she's been teaching longer than I have, but we've both been teaching um, race and ethnicity um, with this view of like, look, the um, classics is on the chopping block <laughs> for canceling, mm. right? If we don't actually address classics relationship to white supremacy and, um, and uh, you know, and try to um, make classics more uh, welcoming and more um, inclusive of different voices and perspectives and, you know, increase the knowledge that we have. And so, yeah, so she and I um, have been asked by Rutledge to do a, um, a book on um, understanding race and ethnicity. So we're, we're working on that. So it'll be like a, a sort of textbook or at least a, a guide that people can use um, some of the discussions that we have. Um, yeah, so yeah, that, that's, uh, that's in a nutshell. <laughs> <sighs> what I do. Every, everything <laughs> is... I mean, incredible. These things have to happen. I mean, a real yeah. Odyssey, Patwa, Ilya, like yeah, it, I, I really it, would like to 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 work on those. Um, get back to them, and it's so <laughs> crucial because you know, as we were talking before we started recording, so much of my introduction to the classics started in high school. I went to the Gellington mm-hmm. School of the Arts. A lot of my teachers were black. And so they were introducing, you know, Medea and Antigone to us from a perspective of, um, it was very contemporary. They made it real to us. They made it mm-hmm. urgent. They made us feel like this is our world. We can be here too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went, aw- I went away to school and, um, you know, I had this command of the language and I was encouraged to go towards it, but I was encouraged to go towards it because I was, you know, I am a black actor. 
Right. Um, and yet I didn't see myself, you know, represented. represented. Mm-hmm. And so if I, if I had the Creole Odyssey, you know, if I had the, okay, are waiting for it. That's for the reason I've got to get it done. <laughs> we need it. We need yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I just love this. Um, I love this idea of the foundation epic, you know, yeah. and how, you know, can you speak a little bit to the importance of, of a foundation epic and, and, and why, you know, why it's important to, to have one, what, ha- what happens with them, how they play a role in our contemporary society. You know, you were drawing a parallel between how contemporary white supremacists are using the classics to really bolster support, recruitment, you know, um, really protect their point of view and, and using using the classics as evidence of, of, of supremacy, you know? So mm-hmm. what is the importance of the foundation epic in your opinion? Well, I, well, I mean, America has a sort of foundation epic, right? This manifest mm-hmm. destiny and, and all this stuff telling, you know, this story that sort of explains why we're so great uh, founding fathers, all of this, mm-hmm. right? Um, however, of course, in that that story, um, black people are erased, or um, you know, they play the minor slave role in in mm-hmm. that story, and um, and this is the problem of epics in general, like the Greco-Roman epics tend to, of course, um, glorify the conquerors, and the conquerors in um, the Greek world are often the slave masters because conquer conquest comes with enslavement. Like you enslave mm-hmm. people, you conquer, right? The ones who survive. Like, <laughs> um, and often it's the women and the children who are enslaved, and the men are exterminated. Um, so, um, telling a story about how uh, how how we are the way how do we come here and how, um, how how you know how things are the way they are why they should stay that way. That's usually the way epic works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the ancients had, ancient Greeks and Romans had epics that tried to explain why we're in this land, why we um, are so great now, blah, blah, blah. So I think what I think what the voice is doing is telling a different story from the perspective of African-Americans trying to tell a story where um, we too can have a, uh, a, a different future, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if we have um, a, you know, if we think about the, the yeah, the, the, by drawing on the, the greatness um, of other minds, we can have a, 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 a different future. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a way, um, I would argue it's sort of Afrofuturist, his story, the story he, he tells, as opposed to being a, sort of etiological story um, where this is why things are the way they are from the past. He's, I think he, what he's trying to do is from the present, because he's writing it from the, the, the present, but he's got all of these very mythical ideas, uh, mythical themes operating, um, but he's talking about, well, we can talk about how the future can be. And it has a lot to do with the, the main character, Zora, um, engaging with the past, like so, the, when the, the one of the crucial moments in the in the story is Zora is in this library, 
and she's just allowed to read whatever she wants. Um, and uh, oh, she wow. and she spends all of her time conversing. He says like conversing with Herodotus and walking down the streets with all these different ancient minds, and um, and it's that sort of you know encounter with uh, these great minds of the past um, through text um, that she then comes up with the idea of how to save the school back in tombs. And, um, and interestingly enough about that is that this, the, the model for the school that um, she comes up with is actually the model for Berea College in, um, in Kentucky. So where the, the idea is that the, the, they, they purchased the land um, and that, um, because at that point, of course, it's like sharecropping and you know, all of that. So what if the school owns its own land and that the students basically pay for their education through working the land instead of you know, working for the, the plantation owner and, and being exploited? Um, here they can, they can um, work, work and, um, and you know, with your labor, invest in something that's eternal, which is your knowledge, right? So he sort of, he, he tells this story that that's their solution. Uh, and it, but it ha it's like the beginnings of it. And of course, and then there's like a race riot to um, resist it, right? But it, it ends with this, this, this idea, well, we have to move forward. Um, let's keep going with this. Um, it's, it, I mean, it, I, it's definitely, I think it's completely underrated as a novel. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, so in this, of course, the main character is a black girl um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and especially a black girl in reconstruction or post reconstruction rather, like Jim Crow South um, where, you know, she's effectively enslaved. She's, you know, um, been sexually abused, these kinds of things. So, um, and, and, but he non nonetheless makes her the really mighty hero in this story, which, you know, is great. Like the, the, the male figure that's him, like, um, is not mm -hmm. as um, heroic um, because he's got these respectability politics values that he needs to get rid of. Um, and, but, and, yet, and he gets rid of them by going to DC um, and seeing what that means. Um, and then um, when he comes back, uh, he re realizes what a great woman she is, how great she is in terms of like her mind and how, um, you know, just heroic as a figure mm -hmm. she is. So it's really, I, I really like this story. So I, I'm, I'm working on, um, on it, I'm trying to make up, uh, make the connections to the classical, um, you know what, what what he's doing with the classical because a lot of the, the discussion is often about well okay he's derivative both because he's using it. no i don't i don't i don't like a i work on people who are in the ancient world who are perceived to be derivative so i i, I don't buy that at all <laughs> right as soon as you were talking about the alexandrian library and the intersection of science and poetry my mind immediately went to this afrofuturist yeah. landscape of like yeah. going back to pick up the knowledge for the future being a future descendant i mean it's like mm -hmm. all wrapped up and there's such a legacy of thinking about the future planning for it creating right. for it that's so it's really exciting to see just more evidence of it 
coming all the time, you know. Right. Um, yeah. And how early it is in. Right. How early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there's all because also another contemporary of his is um Pauline. Pauline Hopkins. Yes. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah. I, I'm gonna have to have another class on that. I mean, <laughs> because she's amazing. Like I, I love this story. Um, so uh, what she did to capture the writings of other mm-hmm. Black women writers across yeah. the country at that time, and just showcase. Um, I, I appreciate what you were saying about the, the the criticism of things being derivative and kind of right. brushing it off as, as as not important or creative and right. You know, this is this is the importance of archiving, in my opinion, is we have to save and preserve yeah. for someone who. Um, again, another guest on the show was saying, you don't know who in the future might need this. You right. might need to reference these things. So right. we have to preserve it. Oh, so were you aware of? You you were we spoke briefly about this. Mm-hmm. Um, aware of Semiramis before, right? Yeah, you know, this 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 episode. Um, and we were talking a little bit about Semiramis. Her transition from, and maybe you maybe you could speak a little bit to this more clearly than I can, but from being known as like a a, a leader or or a a queen you were, a queen <laughs> to the whore of Babylon, you know, that, that right. this is yeah. how we are maybe most familiar with her now. Um, and that transformation, you know, how did that happen? Why? Um, could you give us a little bit of insight into um, Semiramis? Well, I would, I, I think that this is a transformation that happens with every powerful ancient queen. <laughs> Somehow. Speak on it. <laughs> we start from uh, the, the fact that they're in actually taught a course um, a couple of years ago called Wicked Women and it was about uh, women in power and how we, it's as if woman in power equals wicked woman and it, um, it, it was at the time of course where before the, the uh, current administration and of course Hillary Clinton was um, the you know was running for president mm-hmm. And so it was quite topical. Uh, we were re- weren't really talking about her per se. We were actually looking mm-hmm. at Cleopatra and um, the Chinese emperor uh, Wu Zetian, the female emperor, and um, comparing how the two of them um, managed their propaganda. Like, so we, we we there are the two that I think are really interesting in that they were reached the you know the height of their empire they were ruling the empire um but of course the male um patriarchal or confucian in the case of Wu Zetian um backlash to her rule of course then constructs her as this effectively the great horror of I don't know um Shanghai in that case <laughs> in this case it's the great horror of Babylon Cleopatra mm. of course it's com- um constructed by Augustus and then thereafter all of um, English literature and all as similar things. So it's a it's a thing that happens to women in power. And I think, yeah, so um, I think it's it, it's a very patriarchal uh, response to, um, you know, patriarchal uh, attempt to um, denigrate mm-hmm. female power. Um, 
yeah, if women cannot, women and power, not supposed to happen. Like it's unnatural, right? Yes, it's exactly. Mm -hmm. This monstrification of women. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I mean, automatically, women are subjugating women is is important in a patriarchal society, and mm -hmm. so, um, yeah. So women should not be ruling <laughs> in in these in you know in an undemocratic universe, um, which most of history, world history, has been um undemocratic and so yeah um you can't have a woman ruling and so since she was if she existed a queen who was very powerful um then of course we have to um explain that as a phenomenon because it happened right it's not supposed to happen because it's unnatural but it did happen so how do we explain it well she was a monster and it's so interesting <laughs> to think about like you know the history the, the history is captured and then retold with, with a, a spin on top of it and yet the the historical figure whoever it's based on still exists and mm -hmm. yet there isn't really a critical examination of you know who right. is this whore of babylon like who who are these these mm -hmm. people who we just but it's it's just dismissed you know it feels right. like well this is the whore of babylon this is who she was and moving on you know right. <laughs> so i'm mm -hmm. excited to complicate that a little bit right is, yeah. is 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 there a woman from history who you'd want to hang out with and have 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 some coffee or something mm -hmm. stronger no like um Oh yes, of course. The one I'm thinking about, like yeah. So <laughs> yeah, our, our, it's actually she's not that famous, but it's Arsinoe the third. This um, she's um one of the three. So the so in in the Ptolemaic dynasty, that Cleopatra is the the last um last last member of right. Um, what in the early part of the dynasty, which is where my period of working with poets and stuff comes um there's the queen Arsinoe the third um who uh was beloved of the people and all this kind of stuff but then was murdered um by either her brother or her brother's agents so I imagine I have a whole life like whole you know sort of historical novel that I want to write about her because we don't know too much other than how she dies uh but I but I, I want to um I want to, you know, so I'm going to meet her in my novel when I make it up. <laughs> She's the one I would want to meet. And her mom. Awesome. Her mom, I work on a lot. And I, I definitely want to meet her mom, Berenike II, um, who was murdered again by the same brother. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> he, he, he apparently is, he, at least he's credited with killing his mom and his sister. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, but that's who I would want to meet. I would want to meet these three Arsinoes and get the story straight. Like, okay, girl. <laughs> Tell me what happened. <laughs> I really want to know what went down. <laughs> that is incredible. I've never heard. I've never heard of this. Oh, line. Is, the, the, this period in history is actually the most. It's like it's the most. If you like historical, I, I love um, historical dramas. I've been particularly addicted right now to Asian historical dramas, Chinese mm -hmm. or Korean, or even mm -hmm. Thai. I, I, but particularly Chinese and Korean uh, dramas are are outrageous in terms of how much court intrigue goes on and all this stuff yeah. and um the more i'm addicted to that the more i start to think huh it, you know there's um 
the Hellenistic period is very um, full. The reason why I'm attracted to the Hellenistic period is because it's full of a lot of court intrigue and a lot of um, all kinds of stuff's always happening there. Like there's, you know, this one's trying to assassinate that one. This sister is trying to kill this sister, and the, you know, like this whole setup. And I'm like, but that's why it's because it's all very exciting. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of like imperial period as well because the emperors always have all kinds of chaos going on in <laughs> um in their period so yeah yeah but in, in the hellenistic period, a lot more powerful women that's what's interesting is that oh, it's full of these very powerful women even not just in alexandria but in other places that there are these women that are ruling um or at least having a lot of control over their sons or um and ruling from that so it's kind of very very interesting so wow well i'm i'm just everything that you're working on the stories about them are bad though that i know right ramus that oh yeah there's killing each other killing you know like you know wicked all these these women come into power by somehow murdering somebody so it's like incest murder yeah you wonder if that's not just part of the propaganda but but uh yeah Is there any um, last thing you want to say to the to the listeners, um, specifically around dispelling any myths about the classics? And yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I do. I because um, yeah, cause one of the one of the I, when, when we had like one of the things we find it's it's hard to attract um, people of color to the classics. Um, we we had a meeting. Uh, with like the folks of color <laughs> at a meeting, the, mm-hmm. the five of us, no, there's <laughs> more than five <laughs> of us, it might as well be. Um, we had a meeting and we were talking about um, one of the one of the guys, he's a teacher, he's, a, he's actually a high school Latin teacher in, um, I think he's in Memphis. And he was talking about, yeah, it's really hard to attract students to, to take uh, classics, even though he's like the black teacher that's going to take classics. He doesn't get very many black, students taking classics and I think it's got a lot to do with um, the image that classics has had especially um, in the during the culture wars where um, the the field did not take the right side on that and um, and so the reaction then of say black parents is well you shouldn't be studying that white stuff the atmosphere sometimes the other students um, if the professor doesn't handle the class very well, it, you know, some, uh, all these, we, there's a lot of things that will push people out. Um, but, but what I think what students of color uh, bring is a diff- completely different perspective that can open up new knowledge, right? Um, and also um, reception and create creativity too. Like um, why should any fountain of creativity be shut off from you, right? And only accessible to white people, right? Why should um, why shouldn't um, you, you be able to benefit in your own creative um, work? Because uh, I think these artists of the ancient world or whatever are not they, they didn't know anything about our world. They're just writing for their world. Um, but why can't um, anyone just go back in time and and you know listen to what um you know Euripides has to say or Homer or Apollonius or whatever why can't they do that um Mm. 
yeah, so it's a way of limiting yourself, I think, if you if you just don't want to do it. Um, but I but I'm not saying that <laughs> you wouldn't encounter racism along the way. But you're living in America. Where yeah. aren't you encountering racism? <laughs> like, like let's just be real. Like, let's but there are real. people in the people are at least at least in the field now are well aware of the problem, and there, there's a lot of real genuine effort trying to be made um, to change the way um, the fields the field has been perceived, and um, yeah, and make a difference, and also include other voices. So one of the things that I'm really uh, advocating is so because i'm in both classic primarily but also in african-american studies so um at least our department has put their money where their mouth is and we've developed a scholarship for students if they want african-american students or students of color but particularly african-american students that are most underrepresented in classics that they if they decide to do a minor or major that they can um get this get this money um uh, to do the field um why not um and so yeah i'm real my at least my colleagues are really into like actual practical ways of encouraging people to take classics and um and learn about its influence on even africa or african-american or afro-caribbean culture so yeah i can't thank y'all enough for for really pushing this because it's so you know it's just so crucial to how we're going to get through this thing and how we're going to go into the future uh, i'm so honored to have had you on on this show and, and to just have captured some of the some of this portal of wisdom you know that you're bringing <laughs> i can't stress enough that that what you're doing is is urgent and relevant and important so well, i'm glad you feel that way i thank I you hope it is. so thanks everyone for listening to another episode of vanguard of the viragos with chelsea d um, this conversation and more resources will be on the audio podcast and website. This is a whole world, so check it out, y'all. And always remember, we are all on the vanguard of a changing time. Be the difference. Lead with love. Women are the next generation manifested. Underground railroad exit in the matrix. Follow me.